So just before we dig into our passage, we got a blue stuck question uh, in the box last week. And it says, does Romans 2 verse 6 refer to the rewards, judgment of believers? Does Romans 2 verse 6 refer to the rewards, judgment of believers? So chapter 2 verse 6 of Romans was, he will render to each one according to his works. And then to carry on, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. So I want to say, uh, Romans 2 verse 6, I want to say it doesn't refer um, to the rewards judgment of believers. So there is the idea in the Bible that as we go to heaven, God will reward us for what we have done in this life as believers. Um, that is definitely a biblical idea. What those rewards look like, we're not really uh, told in the Bible. But there is the notion of reward. But here in Romans 2, it doesn't seem like that's what's in mind. Uh, so, with the idea that to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour immortality, he will give eternal life, really that seems, as we said last week, to be a category of one. It's the Lord Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever consistently, persistently done what is good and truly sought for glory and honour and immortality. The reason that it sounds a little bit like our reward, if you like, in there, is because of our union with Christ, which we're going to see later on in Romans. So actually we get the reward of eternal life, even though we haven't done these things, even though we haven't consistently in our lives sought uh, for God's glory, and we haven't persistently done good. So it's not saying that this is the reward that you get as a believer, though we do get believers as, uh, though we do get rewards as a believer if that makes sense. So it's true that we do get rewards, but that's not what it's referring to here at this point in the argument. This is here to show us that we don't do this, and therefore we're not in that category, and therefore we're in trouble, which is what Paul is trying to prove to us. If you want to come back on that, please feel free to talk to me afterwards, or do fill in another blue slip, and it goes in the wooden box at the back. So we'll come to our passage now, I'll pray just before we look into the word. Father God, thank you that your word is like a hammer and a fire. Father, thank you that it breaks and it purifies. Father, this morning, speak to us, meet with us in your word. And Father, we pray that we would come away, change people, uh, after having met with you, after having understood uh, the state that we are in. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how bad does something have to get before it's officially a crisis? It was in the news this week that Brexit is officially a crisis. Yes, there you go, I finally mentioned it in a sermon, current affairs and all that. Um, But it's officially a crisis, apparently. But what happens most of the time, actually, when people are in charge, is they try to downplay things, don't they? They try to make out that things are not really so bad. So people say to them, it's a crisis. And they say, no, 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 it's a quandary. And they say, it's a crisis. And they say, well, no, it's, it's a predicament. It's a question that needs to be looked at. At all costs, usually what happens is that people will do anything to deny that they really have a problem, that it really is a crisis. And it's all right looking at those politicians over there. The problem is that we do the same, don't we? We often deny that there's really a problem or a crisis before it's too late whether that's a medical problem or a relational problem. We're much better, aren't we, at burying our heads in the sand than facing the music and sorting out the problem. Over the last two weeks, Paul has been showing us that we really are in a crisis, that we really do have a problem. 
The problem is that we are under God's wrath because of our sin. God has handed us over to be slaves to sin. And now we are guilty before God as we have let that sin come out in all sorts of different and hurtful and awful ways. And the first week we saw that that was bad news for bad people. People who are outwardly moral, uh, sorry, immoral and in some circumstances proud of it. Last week we saw that it was bad news for seemingly good people. Because even if we disapprove of doing wrong things, we still do them anyway. Even if it's seemingly in more discreet ways. When we look down on the outwardly immoral, we're storing up more judgment for ourselves. Because we show that we know that that stuff is wrong, but we still do versions of it ourselves. We pictured it, if you remember, a bit like being on the Titanic. The ship really is sinking. We're really in a life and death crisis and Paul is showing us that. And Paul is shutting down all our imagined means of escape until we're left with just one. And here Paul is finishing off the job. This is the end of that section. By the end of that morning he'll have shown us that we only have one means of escape. That everyone Everybody, all, every Tom, Dick and Harry, every Pierre, Pedro and Peter, every Sarah, Sandra and Sahoyer are facing God's wrath. That's an Iranian name if you're wondering. I saw some confused faces. Nobody is safe. Nobody is exempt. There are no excuses. No technicalities that will get us off. All of us are on that sinking ship. And by the end of the morning we should see that. But there are still some who want to try and sort of wriggle out of God's judgment. What about the great advantages that God's given to certain people? Surely that can't be for nothing. Well, let's see. As we look at our first point. (coughs) All advantages are unfruitful if we are unfaithful. Have a look again at verses 1 to 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For how that? For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with, saying, their condemnation is just. Last time Paul finished uh, with taking apart any idea that being circumcised could make you right with God. Now I want you to imagine for a second that Paul is giving this talk in a synagogue. A heckler stands up and says, hey Paul, what's the point of being a Jew then? Have we any advantages? Is is circumcision worth anything? It's as though Paul has given this talk so many times, he knows what the questions are that people are thinking. His answer though might be a bit surprising, much in every way. It's not like God's word is pointless. And actually, those people, the Jews, were entrusted with God's word. God gave them his word to follow faithfully. The problem is not with God's word and what he gave them, but what they did with it. 
They didn't follow faithfully. But does their unfaithfulness abolish God's faithfulness? Well, God gave them the right instructions, didn't he? He was faithful to his people. The problem was that they didn't follow those instructions. They had the advantage of knowing what was right. That's a real advantage. But an advantage, if you don't use it, ends up being no advantage at all. So it's like if you've ever had that situation where you've needed directions. You know, you've stopped the car and you've asked somebody. God gave them the right directions. He gave them the right map, if you like. If they didn't use those instructions, if they didn't use that map, the fault is not with God, it's with them. Does it nullify God's faithfulness? Paul's answer is, by no means. Now we're going to meet this a lot in Romans, as Paul says, by no means. It's stronger probably than we think it is. God forbid, not on your nelly. Literally it means, may it never be. If you think about amen, when we say amen, it means so be it, doesn't it? This is like the opposite of amen. No way, Jose, does it um up, as my grandma used to say. God could never be unfaithful. That's what he's saying. It is impossible that that would be the answer. But the fact that God is faithful does not mean that he is a pushover. Because the ultimate meaning of his faithfulness is that he is faithful to himself. He never compromises his own integrity. He is always true to himself. As he says here, let God be true and every man a liar. God is always right when he speaks. He never fails when he judges. So the fault is not with God. God is being faithful. It's them that are being unfaithful to what God has given them. But now the heckler ups his game in verses 5 and 6, doesn't he? But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? His point here, the heckler, is that God is being unfair. The heckler is saying, well, God's being unfair. We, we can't do this, can we? He might have given us the right instructions... But we can't carry them out. He's using our unrighteousness to show his righteousness. And that's not fair. How could God do that? Paul, however, does not agree with the heckler. By no means. Because how could God possibly be unfair? How could he possibly be unrighteous? Because if that were the case, how could God judge the world? We've already agreed, haven't we? And they've agreed that some deserve judgment. The Jews thought judgment was great. That God was going to do it to their enemies, the Gentiles. But if we say God is unfair to let ourselves off, then on that basis we must let everybody off. And we know that that's wrong, don't we? Where would be the justice? If you claim God is unfair to judge, then he's unfair to judge anybody. And all of us can think of people that we know deserve judgment. And we seem to think they deserve it, don't we? So it's not God's fault if we can't fulfill the law's commands. Because actually God, we're told in the Bible, created mankind fully capable of doing so. It was us that gave away the capacity to do it. God, if you like, in the Garden of Eden gave us the keys to heaven. 
And we're the ones who chose to throw those keys away. And it's no good at us now shouting that it's unfair that we find the door locked. God gave us the means to do it, but we're the ones that got rid of that means, if you like, by our sinfulness. Well, the heckler tries again. Verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? He's saying here that God's glorified by his righteousness being shown. That's true. Well, he says, well, my lie shows God's truth all the more clearly. My foolishness shows his wisdom. My unrighteousness shows his righteousness. My bad behaviour just shows how good God is, really. All the clearer. So God shouldn't condemn me for my unrighteousness. He should actually thank me. By being ungodly, I'm doing him a favour, says the heckler. I'm glorifying him by sinning. So in fact, says the heckler, we should sin more. We should do more sin so that we can see God's sinlessness more clearly. We should get darker so that we can show the brightness of God all the more clearly. That's what you're saying, Paul, isn't it, by this? Apparently that's what they've been spreading that Paul has been saying. Paul is not impressed. You see what he says at the end of verse 8? Their condemnation is just. How could they possibly think that God would be pleased with our unrighteousness? How could they possibly think that God would want us to be evil? How could they slander God in this way? You cannot excuse your way out of sin. You cannot squirm out of God's judgment. You can't place the blame on God. It's not God who's being unrighteous. It's not God who's being put on trial. It's us. We're the ones on trial. We're the ones who've rebelled against the king, meriting his wrath. We're the ones who've put ourselves in this predicament. We're guilty before a holy God. And boy, are we guilty. Because at this point, Paul now comes to the end of his devastating takedown of all humanity. He goes for the jugular, if you like, as this heckler has been trying to wiggle out of sin. The gloves are off, and he doesn't pull his punches. What we see next is that all humankind are corrupt. Head, heart, body, and soul. Just have a look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin what follows after that is the technical name for it is a katina it's like a list of bible verses strung together supposedly the idea was like a string of pearls but as you look down the list that follows it feels less like a string of pearls and more like a string of nails or spikes as he puts the final nails into mankind's coffin if you like This is a devastating takedown of the whole of humanity, us included. This is Paul's argument coming down to land as he shows without a shadow of a doubt that all mankind are under God's judgment and all of us are facing God's wrath. What we have here is a collection of sayings from the Psalms, from Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. Let me read you to them. Uh, Sorry, let me read them to you. uh, Verses 10 to 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. For there is no fear of God before their eyes. A few things to note about what we see in that list. First of all, it's it's universal, both exclusively and inclusively. So exclusively, it says none is righteous, not, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. If you think about it, it couldn't be more emphatic, could it, really, as a list? No one, no, not you, not him, not her, no one. And it's also universally inclusive. All have turned aside. Everyone. All people. So it's universal. It covers everybody. It goes, secondly, from head to toe. From understanding in the head, in verse 10, down to the feet that are swift to shed blood, in verse 15. It's every part of us. Mind, eyes, throat, mouth, lips, tongue, feet. Even the paths that our feet walk on. That we choose to walk on. So that's the, the second thing. It's, it's all of us. And it's shocking language, isn't it? Listen to some of the words that it uses. Worthlessness. Deception. Open tombs. Snake poison. Curses and bitterness. Bloodshed. This isn't talking about a bit of harmless fun, is it? This is deadly stuff that we're talking about. That all of us do. And it's saying as well, fourthly, that we're not even close. It's not that we're sort of halfway there. This says here that none seeks for God. We're not even looking for him, let alone close to finding him by ourselves. And sure, there might be some people who are interested in religion, but you find that they're not seeking after God. They're seeking fulfillment. They're seeking experience. They're seeking something mystical. But they're not seeking after God. Or perhaps actually in their search, they're seeking to suppress the truth by swapping the real God, the true God, for some idol or some false God. We're so warped that we're not looking for a God. We're actually hiding from God, aren't we? We've been doing it from the beginning, like Adam and Eve who hid in the Garden of Eden. We know deep down that we're guilty and we can't face a holy God. And this list then includes us. With all this, don't look out there, don't look out the windows. That's not where it's supposed to point us. It's supposed to point us in here at our own hearts. This is how the Bible describes us. This is how the Bible describes you. This is what theologians call total depravity. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but that every one of us And every part of us, as individuals, is corrupted by sin. We might not all be corrupted to the same extent, but that's a bit like a leper boasting to another that he still has all his fingers. We're all in the same boat. We've all got the same disease. All of us are broken. None of us can do what God's law requires of us. We said last week that we're required to be doers of the word. 
Well, here we find that we're not even really trying. But that's not then here to encourage us to try harder at being a doer of the word. It's there to utterly humble us. I'm going to say this as slowly as I can to make it clear as I possibly can. The Bible's message is not you are good enough. Sorry, let's try again. The Bible's message is not you are not good enough, so try harder. The Bible's message is that you are positively bad and you are facing God's judgment however hard you try. So the Bible's message is not you can do it, just try. The Bible's message is you cannot do it. Do not even attempt it. Don't go there, you will fail. The ship is sinking and you cannot swim to shore. However hard you try, because you're broken. You can't do it. There is more chance of black becoming white or a square becoming a circle than us being able to make ourselves good enough for God. This is not like the chances of Leeds ever winning the premiership or Timmy Mallet being the next prime minister. There's a slim chance, isn't there, for both of those, however slim. You know, given the right circumstances, they might just happen. But not here. This is a devastating demolition of humanity. And it makes any hope of this happening impossible. It's like a potato trying to build a rocket or the sun trying to brush its teeth. It's completely and totally impossible to be good enough for God. We have completely, uh, we're completely helpless and hapless. We have zero chance of saving ourselves. That's what this is supposed to show us. The last nail in the coffin. And it leads us up horrifyingly to our last point. All must stand before the judgment seat of God. Have a look at 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here he's summing up his whole argument since chapter 1, verse 18. His point here is is this indictment of humanity is what is found in Jewish scriptures. All those bad things that we read are from the Bible. That's what it means by law here, the whole Bible. Uh, None of those quotes, if you notice, were from the first five books, which we normally refer to as the law. None of them were things to do or not to do. It's a way of referring to the whole word, the whole Bible. And he's saying, look, if the Jews are trying to excuse themselves, well, look at what it says about you in your own book. How could they think that they were excluded from God's judgment when this is what their own book says about humanity? And the result of all this is silence. Silence before God. I personally find this one of the most terrifying images that you meet in scripture. Being stood before God facing imminent eternal punishment in hell. And not having a single word to say in my defence. Not a single word. The words won't come out because at that point I will know that there are no excuses. God knows my background. God knows the difficulties that I've faced in life. God knows all the possible excuses I could give for my sinful behaviour. And I know that despite all this, I'm guilty before him. 
am totally responsible for my own actions. I have nothing to say, nothing to plead, and nowhere else to go. As the call goes up for the defence, I'll have nothing to say. And nothing to feel but terrible regret and the awful feeling of wanting the ground to swallow me up whole. The terrifying thing is that, biblically speaking, that's what's going to happen next. That's a picture of hell. Perhaps that's why we get that feeling. We know deep down that's what we deserve. And here, before the good judgment seat of God, our supposed good works will count for nothing. Have a look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law, the commandments, it turns out there is never meant as preaching fodder for self-righteous preachers to shout at people in the streets. It turns out there was never meant to be a tick list that we can tick off and congratulate ourselves. It was never meant to make us think that we were right before God. In fact, it was supposed to make it abundantly clear that that was not an option. That keeping the rules could not make us right before God. It turns out here that the law really is a charge sheet. A charge sheet that we get to see before our execution. Now there are other uses for the law. But here the function of the law, the commandments, is firstly to let us know that we are sinners. The point of the law is to show us that we can never keep God's law. We could never possibly hope to make ourselves righteous before God. I was trying to think of an illustration to try and hammer it home. The closest I could get to it was the idea of trying to get money for a speeding ticket. So imagine going to the DVLA with your speeding ticket that you got through the post, handing it over and saying, I'd, I'd like my £70, please. And I'm saying, what? Do you not realise that this is what you're supposed to pay? Do you not realise this is a penalty? We don't give you something for it. You owe us money. This is evidence of your debt, not of your credit. You have no credit. Only this is worse, isn't it? It's not a few pounds that we owe. It's our very souls. It's our very selves. In this passage here, we're facing hell with no earthly way out. No excuses, no deals to be struck. And it's that moment in every adventure film where everything seems hopeless and like all hope is gone. It's supposed to drive us to the utter lowest point that we can find. This is supposed to show us that we are guilty sinners before a righteous God. It's the lowest moment. But like in those adventure films, it's... It's there to show us all hope is gone in one way. So it's a bit like when in Beauty and the Beast, the beast dies and the last petal falls off the flower. Have you seen that yet? Or when they're stuck inside the last stronghold in Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings, awaiting certain death from thousands before them. Or when in Toy Story 3, they've exhausted all means of escape and they're sat there holding hands as they go down into the furnace. Even if you haven't seen those films, you can know situations like them. It seems impossible that there'd be any escape. It seems impossible that there could ever be a happy ending. And we need to grasp this morning that the story could have ended there. God does not owe us a happy ending. 
God does not owe us anything. We are in his debt. We've made a mess and it's totally our fault. We're facing God's judgment, not because he is mean, not because there's been a miscarriage of justice, but because we are absolutely guilty, corrupt from head to toe. And God would have been perfectly within his rights to end our story there. Stood before God, utterly speechless, no excuse, no defence, guilty and knowing it. Guilty and knowing what's coming. Standing before a holy God and facing his terrifying wrath. God could have ended it there. And for countless millions of people, it will end there. There may be people in this room for whom it will end there. There may be people in our families for whom it will end there. There are certainly people in our streets, in Otley and in Ilkley and in other places, for whom it will end there. That might bother you. I should say this morning, it should bother you. If you're not shaken by this, then you should be. If this doesn't stir your concern for your own soul, for the souls of others, then you should be concerned. Because no one will stand before God with their own righteousness. No one is good enough for God. In fact, we're not even close, are we? As we saw in chapter 1, we're all guilty before God. We're all slaves to sin. And we're all justly facing God's wrath. This is the darkest of the dark that the Bible gets, in my opinion. So forgive me if this is a bit of a dark sermon. But this is not here to encourage us. This is not here to encourage you. It's here to devastate you. This morning's message is not first and foremost an encouraging one. It's a distressing one. It's not a building up. It's a demolition job. A demolition job on our pride. A demolition job on our foolish hopes of getting by on judgment day. A demolition job on any chance that we might be able to wriggle out of God's judgment. We cannot and we will not. But it's knocking us down so that God can pick us up with the gospel in the next passage. But we do need to get the gospel, we do need to get the knocking down first. Because if we don't understand this as we understand the gospel, we'll go through our Christian lives thinking we were nearly there. And that God's just sort of giving us a leg up, a help. We'll go through our Christian lives thinking that we were basically okay and God just recognised it. And foresaw that we do nice things or something along those lines. But this passage here this morning is to show us that we are bad. We are the baddies. We are the bond villains. We're the criminals. We're the other side. I quoted Coldplay last week. This week I'm going to quote Keane. We're not the flowers. We're the strangling weeds in the meadow. And it's a realisation that we all have to make. We're not the goodies. We're the baddies. One of our problems as humankind is that we always cast ourselves as the hero. All baddies think they're the goodies, don't they? They all think they're doing it for something good. Chew on that for a second. But left to ourselves, all of us, without exception, would be plotting God's downfall. Whether actively or passively, we would be working against him. But even passively working against God is no excuse before we try and wriggle out that way. We need to recognise, if we're saved this morning, what God has saved us from. How desperate our situation was. 
How utterly undeserving we were of saving. How dark our hearts really were without God. Not so that we can have self-esteem issues, but so that all the glory goes to God. And so that we are overflowing with thankfulness and gratitude to him. If we think that he's helped us a little, then we'll love him a little. Jesus himself said much the same in Luke 7. um, Words to this effect. He who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Paul is showing us just how much we have been forgiven from. He rescued us when we were undeserving. He sought us and saved us when we weren't even looking for him. He saved us while we were kicking and screaming against him. While we were still doing that, Christ died for us. And that's when we realise the amazingness of grace. That's when we realise the depths of the love of God. That he would save those who were completely undeserving. Under God's wrath, slaves to sin and guilty before him. God loved and loves the unlovable. God saved the unsavoury. God justified the ungodly, as Paul will put it in chapter 4. We didn't earn it, merit it, deserve it, warrant it, work for it, contribute towards it, secure it, win it or pay for it. And as Christians, we still don't earn it, merit it, warrant it, work for it, contribute towards it, secure it, win it or pay for it. Do you get that this morning? It's all of grace. Undeserved, unconditional grace. It's all from God's mercy towards us. Mercy that grants us pardon. And this morning shows us what we're pardoned from. And how can it be any other way, if you think about it? That's where Paul has got to. How can it be any other way than God saving us? When we've seen what we're like and how unable we are to save ourselves. So we see this morning that things are really bad. The situation is really dark because of sin. We really are in a crisis. But, that's going to be the next word. But, God has shown his love towards us. Love to the loveless. Grace to the graceless. Mercy to the unmerciful. We nobodies become somebody in Christ because of his great love. And mercy towards us. So let's pray that God would let those truths sink deep into our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we acknowledge that we have sinned against you. Father, when we see how you view us in your word, Father, it shocks us. Father, it shocks us to think that we are so sinful. But Father, we are who you say we are. But thank you, Father, that the story doesn't end there. Father, thank you that there is a wonderful gospel to tell, that even though we were in the deepest and darkest pit, Father, you came and you rescued us. Father, help us to realise this morning what we've been rescued from. Father, help us to remember how amazing your grace is and all that you've done for us undeservingly, Father, on our part, because we could never deserve it from you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.